Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, 20 Years of Global War on Terror, Minnesota's Leadership Defending the Rule of Law, discusses the impact of 9-11 and the global war on terror that was waged in response. The featured panelists for this event are Amy Berquist, Senior Staff Attorney for the Advocates for Human Rights, where she coordinates advocacy before the UN and regional human rights bodies. Her focus areas include discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, rights of minorities and non-citizens, and the death penalty. Honor Jeffrey Keyes, a retired United States Magistrate Judge in the District of Minnesota. Since retiring from the bench in April 2016, Mr. Keyes has been actively engaged as a mediator and arbitrator in a wide variety of cases, including intellectual property disputes. Nicole Moen is a shareholder and the co-chair of the Business Litigation Department of Fredrickson and Byron, PA. Moen has also devoted considerable time to pro bono matters and was part of a team of Fredrickson lawyers who represented a Guantanamo detainee for several years. Major Todd Pierce retired from the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General Corps on November 30, 2012 where he had served as a military commission's defense counsel representing Guantanamo prisoners beginning in 2008. Peter Thompson practiced criminal law in Minnesota for 33 years. As an assistant United States attorney and federal public defender, he prosecuted and defended federal criminal cases for seven years. Thompson has also been active with Minnesota Advocates for Human Rights regarding war crimes and human rights investigations in Bosnia, Sri Lanka, Haiti, India, Cambodia, and represented immigrants applying for political asylum in the United States. The keynote speaker is Fanula Neolan. Neolan holds the Robina Chair in Law, Public Policy, and Society and is the faculty director of the Human Rights Center at Minnesota Law. In 2017, Professor Neolan was appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council as United Nations Special Rapporteur. In this capacity, she works closely with the states and United Nations entities to advance human rights protections in some of the most difficult contexts globally. This event was moderated by Amanda Lyons, the Executive Director of the Human Rights Center at Minnesota Law. Providing opening remarks is Gary W. Jenkins, Dean and William S. Patty, Professor of Law at Minnesota Law. This Human Rights Center event was recorded on September 15, 2021. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the University of Minnesota Law School, I'm delighted to welcome you all, our students, faculty, alumni, uh, and friends, to 20 years of the global war on terror, Minnesota's leadership defending the rule of law. This uh, 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 event is sponsored by the Law School's Human Rights Center, um, and we're thrilled to have you join us. I'm Gary Jenkins, I'm the Dean of the Law School, uh, and again, thank you for being here with us. I'm also thrilled to welcome our outstanding lineup of panelists, um, as well as our moderator and our keynote speaker. Moderating today is the executive director of the Human Rights Center, Amanda Lyons, class of 09. And our keynote speaker is my friend and treasured colleague, Professor Fanula Nielan. Nie Nie 
Uh, she is the University Regents Professor. She's also the holder of the Rabina Chair in Law, Public Policy and Society, and the Faculty Director of the Human Rights Center. Now, the Human Rights Center was founded in 1988 by Professor David Weisbrod, and it is an integral part of the law school, the university, and the national and global human rights landscape. The center supports and drives research. It prepares future lawyers to defend human rights and collaborates with governments and organizations to make an impact in law, policy, and practice. We are so proud to have the Human Rights Center in our law school community and proud of its continuing impact and role in safeguarding human rights and promoting the rule of law. Now, as you are all probably all aware, this past Saturday, uh, September 11th, marked the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and the crash of Flight 93 um, collectively that killed almost 3,000 people and launched the invasion of Afghanistan and the global war on terror. Of course, for most of us above a certain age, that day has special meaning and memories. For me, as someone who grew up in New York and who was actually a young lawyer living and working in New York City on that day, 9-11 was pivotal. It was a catalyst from which things were never the same. It influenced you know, my life, my scholarly work, um, and direction even when I became an academic years later. But its impact was not just on individuals, right? Um, uh, it was pivotal. It was influential. It was a catalyst for change for me. But that same thing could be said for our political institutions, for government policies, for society. So today, we are honored to hear from uh, uh, Director Lyons, from Professor uh, uh, Nieline, uh, along with an amazing panel, to better understand the context of the events unfolding in Afghanistan today, the ways in which uh, Minnesota lawyers have been at the forefront of efforts to uphold the rule of law, to safeguard human rights, to defend American values during the war on terror, and in the 20 years since 9-11. In the last two decades, the US and countries all over the world have taken steps to combat terrorism that continue to significantly impact longstanding principles of democracy, human rights, and the fair administration of justice addressing and advocating for the value of human rights and the role of the rule of law and democracy is central to our role as lawyers, to our role as legal scholars, and as people who believe in advancing equity and justice in society. And I'm confident that the work of the Human Rights Center over 30 years, as well as the work and impact of our speakers today, continues to move the needle and make a significant contribution. So once again, special thanks to all of the distinguished speakers who are participating in this important discussion. We appreciate your contribution, your presence here today. 
And so with that, I think I've uh, allowed our latecomers to, to, to log on, and I think it's ready. It's time for us to, to begin the important work and this great discussion. So welcome, thank you, and I'll turn it over to Amanda Lyons. Thank you, Dean Jenkins. That was really great. And we so appreciate you being here with us today. And that really is the exact context that we wanted to hold this conversation in. We know around the country and around the world, um, many different people and different groups are thinking back on this 20th anniversary and thinking about this era and what it's meant and doing some stock taking. And for us, we were really excited to have a conversation about specifically what that has looked like in Minnesota and especially for our legal community and the different ways that our lawyers here and leaders have uh, had in different ways defended human rights in this context. And for us at the center, uh, a big motivation for the conversation is looking back at the work of Professor David Weisbrot and, and pulling out some of this history of the Guantanamo Defense Project that he had started. And I think looking at the participant list, I know that there were a lot of people here that were involved in that project and were really proud of that legacy. And of course, now to have the center hosting and supporting the work of Professor Nielein and her mandate with the UN on counterterrorism, it's an important area for the center. And we're really grateful to be able to have this conversation with so many friends. And it's terrible that it's one hour because I know we could fill up so much more space. And initially, we had hoped to be doing this in a more informal, in-person setting. So we hope that we can keep that dynamic a little bit for the conversation today. We're going to first hear a few comments from Professor Nieloin who can give us the, the context and then we'll turn more to a round table format with, with all of our guests. So just to say one other comment about the format, we won't have time to take a lot of questions from the audience, but I will be really happy to collect those. So I'll take those. If you do wanna type in any comments or questions, we'll make sure that we take those and share them with the speakers and do our best to respond offline to those. And so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Professor Nieline. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge the enormous amount of work uh, Amanda Lyons, our executive director, also a graduate of our law school, has done in bringing all of these threads and so many memories and people together in one place. And really thank her for that. I also just really want to acknowledge the support of the dean to the Human Rights Center, to the work of human rights in the law school, the priority the dean has placed on human rights itself. I think the invisible hand that holds us all here today is David Weisbrot, and many of us are extraordinarily grateful to him for the role that he's played in our professional and personal lives. But I think it's testament to the many, many, many sparks that David lit over the course of his life that we're having so many lawyers and academics and students all in the one room trying to do good, because that was particularly what David liked to do best. Um, so as Amanda said, last Saturday, we celebrated or reflected on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I think for me in particular, I think of the lives lost and the enduring harms to victims from across the globe. And up to this day, the lack of resolution for so many of those family members who are still struggling to come to terms 20 years later with the scale of their loss. And um, it's also important for us as lawyers to remember that as the ash was billowing around the ruins of the Twin Towers, then President George Bush declared, 
either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. As the nomenclature of the global war on terrorism was adopted after that day, it was mainstreamed. Torture memos were produced. Torture was widely and egregiously practiced. Individuals were rendered across borders. And this detention camp was established at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Military commissions followed very quickly after that. And more than that, I think what we know is there was an enormous legacy of surveillance, which was part and parcel of what the government established in that moment. But also that surveillance included the ethnic and religious profiling of hundreds of Muslim Americans. And the global war on terror appeared to be um, growing, magnified and essentially unstoppable. So soon after all that happens, what do we see happening? Well, what we see happening is the quick population of the prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. President Bush had already declared that he would not comply with the Geneva Conventions unless he felt like it. And the prison was strictly off limits. I recall the enduring image captured by a small group of journalists led by the stalwart Carol Rosenberg from the Miami Herald, the one journalist who's covered this from beginning to end, uh, watching the parading of those first uh, individuals who arrived at the at the site. A little bit like a terror, I don't know, I can't think of a good word, but a terror prep walk for the world to witness. The journalists couldn't even speak with those that had been assembled. And um, what happened was that they were shown them, the, those men in orange jumpsuits, and those images have indelibly stayed in our minds. After that, what do we know? Well, we know that systematic torture was practiced at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, that torture is absolutely prohibited by international law, both treaty law and customary international law. And those military commissions that were established are commissions that are inconsistent with international law. It's worth noting that the Human Rights Committee pronounced soon thereafter that while military commissions aren't per se illegal, uh, applying and putting civilians who ought to be covered by regular civilian trials into those situations is simply inconsistent with international law. So then let's talk about the lawyers, because we have a day that today honors the work of lawyers. And I think it's really important to say and to critically understand how important the right of the accused person or the person being held to have access to counsel is. And the Bush administration sought to limit that access to counsel. For example, in the case of Richard Reed, one of the few, not a Guantanamo, but a per individual, but a person who was charged in relation to terrorism offenses in a similar period, Reed's lawyers were asked to sign documents that effectively restricted their independence and their ability to conduct their client's defense. They refused, and of course, punitive measures follows. The same time in that same period, we saw senior U.S. officials condemning U.S. law firms for thinking about representing inmates of the Guantanamo Bay detention site, suggesting that it was shocking that they were representing those down there who would do us harm. So it is worth noting that the lawyers in Minnesota, Minnesota who stood up to be to be, to be counted in these moments were lawyers who were standing out against the grain, lawyers who were conscious of the enormous 
burden on individuals who stood up to defend, lawyers who were deeply aware that they would neither be thanked nor acknowledged uh, for the work they were doing in fundamentally defending the rule of law. I've had the chance to visit Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I had the chance to bring a student of mine. We went down to observe military commissions. I think my, my dean, Gary, was a new dean at the time, and I told him I was going, and he was like, are you sure? And I was like, I'm sure. And then he got to worry about us for a week, but was really glad and supportive that we were doing this work of, of witnessing and acknowledging and seeing because lawyers both lawyer, but they also witness and they have an enormously important role to play in speaking to the world uh, when the rule of law itself is under threat. Defense lawyers are a critical part of defending the rule of law. And I think it's important, and I'll close out here by saying, it's this enormously hard role for defense lawyers. On the one hand, you're doing what you are called to do, which is to defend the rule of law by defending those who are accused, or in this case, those who've never been accused of anything. But equally, you run a very, I think, narrow road of being uh, afraid of legitimizing the process, which is essentially a black hole legal process by showing up to defend people or being prepared to defend people. And that sort of testy path between advocating and supporting the rule of law, but wanting to be sure that we're not um, defending the disablement of law is, I think, a really tenuous ethical path that so many of the lawyers we're going to hear about, hear from today, have traveled. Um, I think it's really important to say that it's just extraordinary how many Minnesota lawyers have been a part of this defense project over the years. And it's important because Guantanamo Bay, Cuba is still open. There are 39 men still held there, many of whom have never been charged with a crime in their lives. We know that geriatric care facilities are being put in place in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And this suggests to many of us that the government is intending to hold people for the entirety of their lives, never having charged them with any offense. These again are individuals who've experienced the worst kind of human rights violations. And so even though Guantanamo Bay is a small island in a small, on a small island off the coast, far from our imagination and far from where we can access it, it remains absolutely critical to the rule of law in the United States that we do not forget that there are 10, 39 men still in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and that we have an obligation to defend them so that we can defend the very essence of the rule of law in the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Fanula. That's such a great connection between the work that started here as early as January 2002, it seems, when we were looking through the archives, the response all the way up until now. And so it's great to think about it in that context. And just to state the obvious quickly before we turn to our panel, of course, there's a wide range of human rights defense that has happened in the Twin Cities in the context of the post 9-11 era. And today we're really trying to hone in on the ethical and professional responsibility considerations for lawyers. And so it's a, a particular piece of a bigger puzzle of, of defending people's rights in this really repressive context. So I'll just make one more invitation to people to please do submit questions or comments through the Q&A and we will um, 
hold on to those and take them offline. And I'll now just run down our really expert panel. I'm going to do something terrible in the sake of time. I'm going to share um, in the chat our event page, which has through that site, you can access everybody's full biography. So I think I'll, I'll send that link and save the time for our, our substantive discussion. So I'm going to turn first to Amy Burquist, please. Amy, the, um, the advocates for human rights, of course, have been key leaders in Minnesota in this wide range of work, and especially the work that the organization has done in investigating the impact of 9-11 on the lives of immigrants and refugees and different religious minorities in Minnesota. And so I'm hoping that you can get us started in this, this panel discussion, um, telling us a little bit about how 9-11 impacted your own trajectory into the legal profession and any reflections that you have on the role of law and lawyers in, in the climate of fear and discrimination. Sure. And I want to thank, before I start, I want to thank Dean Jenkins, Vanula, and Amanda and the law school for hosting this event. It's really an honor to be a part of it. Uh, so I, when people find out that I was a high school teacher for 11 years before I went to law school, I often get the question, well, why did you go to, go to law school? And I want to back up not to September 11th, 2001, but one week before, which was Tuesday, September 4th, 2001. That was when I returned to South High School in Minneapolis after a one-year sabbatical leave, and because of some changes in the teaching schedule, I started teaching um, social studies to English language learner students. And at South High, these were recently arrived refugees. Most of them were from East Africa, but not from Somalia. Most of them were from Ethiopia, and about half of them were Muslim. And they had escaped really horrible trauma, horrific human rights, abu rights abuses in their home countries, and they were facing really complex challenges in adjusting to life in the United States. And then one week later was September 11th. And, um, you know, I think maybe we sometimes forget about how it impacted our community here in Minnesota. It wasn't just a few days of harassment and abuse. There was a lot of fear and trauma from that people experienced, people who had already experienced a lot of trauma in their lives and had thought that they were seeking refuge. Um, and so I taught those students for three years before going to the University of Minnesota Law School. And at the University of Minnesota Law School, as Fanula alluded to, there's this common thread today, and that's David Weisbrot. So I worked very closely with him. We authored four articles on the subject of extraordinary rendition. But the one main reason I went to law school was to do something more than just offer a sympathetic ear to my students to listen to their stories of why they fled and what they were experiencing here in Minnesota. I wanted to do something that could help address those issues more systematically. And that was something lawyers in Minnesota were doing. So the Advocates for Human Rights is based here in Minneapolis. It was founded in 1983 by David Weisbrot and other attorneys with connections to the law school. And it was based on the premise that we are all advocates for human rights and pro bono attorneys can and should play a leadership role in that effort. And the, the Advocates for Human Rights does advocacy at the United Nations, for example, including by drawing on experiences of people who are living in diaspora, people who are our clients, to address human rights violations in their home country, but the advocates also documents human rights violations here at home in Minnesota. So the, the thing I want to point to today is a 2007 report the advocates published called Voices from Silence, Personal Accounts of the Long-Term Impact of 9-11. And I'm hoping Amanda will be able to put a link to that in the chat so that people can take a look if they're interested. It was a team of 16 pro bono attorneys and law students, some from the University of Minnesota. They conducted 107 fact-finding interviews with Minnesotans who had directly experienced human rights violations here in our state 
after September 11th. And there were several individuals and groups who came to the advocates. One Muslim man who was a U.S. citizen implored us. He said, it's not safe for us to speak out. You must speak out for us now. And then another person we interviewed said, it's important that these stories are documented so we don't suffer in silence. So the Advocates for Human Rights did this fact-finding using the lens of international human rights standards, talking about government obligation to respect, protect, and fulfill human rights. And in some cases, it was government actors here in Minnesota who were violating those human rights. In other cases, it was private actors. But we know that legislation, policy, and proposed legislation can also interact with the animus existing in the community among members of the public. So it's not just isolated acts. So tying it into uh, the issue of ethics, um, Minnesota Rule of Professional Responsibility Rule 6.1 has to do with voluntary pro bono public service. And it says a lawyer should aspire to render at least 50 hours of pro bono legal services per year. Not every lawyer or law firm can take on representing someone detained at Guantanamo. And the Advocates for Human Rights offers pro bono work that's really important for documenting human rights violations, even where nobody is detained or where litigation might not be appropriate. Our interviewees didn't always describe serious hate crimes or life-changing changing tragedies, but they collectively described this pattern of a community that was going in, increasingly hostile toward immigrants, Muslims, and people perceived as Muslims. So these fact-finding projects in our own community really help create an important record and give voice to people who are unable to speak out. Our current example of this is a project we are doing in collaboration with the law school to observe immigration court proceedings and document what's happening there. Um, and that documentation is also ultimately really important for our practice of law as well. And you can just read the forward of the report for a couple of examples there. Uh, so I think it's really important that these stories were brought together all in one place because our memories fade. And people talk have been talking about how the nation really came together 20 years ago. And I think it's, it's really worth revisiting that report with fresh eyes to learn more. So I'll end there, thanks. Amy, thanks so much. And I really appreciate the, the personal reflection also, just like Dean Jenkins, because it was a uh, individual, something that we all uh, lived our own way individually. And then the, the connection to the work that you've done, and especially the point that human rights questions are not just um, very far away or looking at uh, federal questions, but we have a lot to do here in Minnesota. So I'm grateful for your reflections and all the work of the advocates. I'd like to turn now to Major Todd Pierce. We're very lucky, or no, I'm skipping my order. Did I, I, Todd, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow the order that we have here. That's terrible. I'm gonna turn to Judge Keyes, please. And this is great. Judge Keyes has, has done exactly the type of pro bono work that Amy was talking to us about. And the Minnesota Bar has a proud tradition of pro bono work, including a major commitment by Minnesota law firms to human rights work, whether it's death penalty work, immigration cases, or the representation of Guantanamo detainees. And you've really been a leader in this work. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that you could say a, a bit about your work in the post 9-11 context and also your reflections on some of the challenges or the rewards facing attorneys in law firms who take on this uh, type of work, a little bit to what Professor Nealine was mentioning with the kind of stepping out of the grain to do this work. Judge Keyes. Thank you, Amanda. Well, first of all, Paul, let me give a, a big shout out to Professor Weisbrook uh, and to his um, enormous work over the years that have inspired so many people that has been mentioned. And also, of course, the work of the 
Minnesota Human Rights Center and the Advocates for Human Rights, um, as, uh, as Amanda alluded, alluded to, there is a long and proud tradition in Minnesota of pro bono work and specifically uh, work by lawyers in international human rights. Um, in my own case, after a long career working in uh, commercial litigation, um, I got involved in, first of all, in death penalty representation uh, in the early 90s. And that was through Minnesota Advocates. We talk about how you get inspired by people. And actually, what inspired me to get involved in that was hearing Sister Helen Prejean give a talk in Minnesota. And I decided to get involved in that work, which really is a, um, a sort of uh, international human rights work and handled a one death penalty case over about a 15 year period of time. But the work that really got me involved in international human rights came about um, in a, roughly 2000 when I got a call from uh, from Minnesota, what was then known as Minnesota Advocates uh, to possibly take on the representation of uh, Casey Jama, who was a Somali, um, a Somali man living in Minnesota. And he was about to be deported to Somalia uh, which was a country that had no central government uh, and uh, deportation of Somalia at that time might have been equivalent to a death sentence. And then we started on a long road of litigation um, dealing with that issue um, at the federal district court level, court of appeals. And ultimately, I argued uh, JAMA's case to the United States Supreme Court in October of 2005. It directly tied into the war on terror because after 9-11, that case took on, like many cases, uh, the government uh, made it into a terrorism case, arguing that it was necessary uh, for the government to have complete discretion with respect to uh, deportations, uh, even in circumstances where life could be in jeopardy uh, because of the of the global war on terror. Uh, JAMA also went through a, after the Supreme Court case, and we lost on a close 5-4 vote in the Supreme Court. But after that, uh, the government attempted to deport uh, Jama to uh, Somalia, but they had to do it taking him with a somebody who was going to be renditioned in Europe, brought him to Kenya, tried to get him into Somalia, failed. He ultimately came back to the United States, and ultimately he self-deported to Canada and was ultimately granted a form of asylum in, in Canada. But then after that, then I got involved in the uh, Guantanamo case of Omar Khadr, who was a who uh, was 15 years old when he was uh, detained um, in Afghanistan and went through a long and tortured history. Ultimately, uh, he uh, after pleading to a murder charge, he ultimately was he went to Canada uh, and um, uh, ultimately was vindicated as a result of the action of the uh, Canadian government. And that's when I had an opportunity to work with uh, Professor Weisbrot. I want to make a few comments about uh, pro bono work uh, in Minnesota and its long tradition and encourage those of you who are anticipating um, a career uh, in the law uh, to keep that in mind. The um, international human rights pro bono work is really a special order of business. Firms that take on that sort of work make a huge commitment because of the time that's involved and often the potential adverse publicity that's involved in that representation. So it takes a, a very special sort of firm uh, to uh, agree to those commitments. And um, also uh, it is not without controversy. And so I always, um, 
I always say that when you when you take on that sort of work, you do have to be prepared uh, both for in a large law firm dealing with the justification for that sort of work with your colleagues, uh, dealing with the expense and the time that commitment that's required, and ultimately selling the firm on the benefits uh, that flow from that. And I always believe that, uh, particularly for large firms, my firm was Briggs and Morgan, and Nicole's firm is Fredrickson and Byron, and we've both done a lot of work with that. Ultimately, there can be enormous benefits that do flow uh, to a uh, law firm from their commitment to that sort of work. It shows their commitment to justice. It shows the enormous amount of litigation skills or other skills that the firm can bring to bear. And it also shows the, the clients, including business clients and others, the courage with which the firm operates, uh, which can have, I believe, a longstanding and important um, value uh, to the law firm. It doesn't help always to, it doesn't help, it does help to be able to sell a law firm always on what can be good can also be profitable. And I always felt that there was a very strong opportunity for that uh, in the um, in the sort of international human rights work uh, that uh, that goes on in Minnesota. So that concludes my remarks. Judge Keith, thank you. And I, I just, I really know what you've contributed to this culture of pro bono work that we have here in Minnesota. And we're really grateful for that and excited now to turn over to Nicole Mowen, who's another attorney that's engaged in this type of pro bono work. And without further ado, Nicole, let me ask you, you, you've done this type of pro bono work together with your colleagues at Fredrickson and Byron. Um, you were involved in direct representation of Vasin Zamiri for years, and I know that you traveled to Guantanamo several times. I'm hoping that you could say a little bit about your work and maybe what it's like now, years into the future. How is it looking back at that work and the impact you think it had on, on you and your perspective? Thank you, Amanda. Um, yeah, so hi, everyone. My name is Nicole Moen. I'm a, uh, now I am a shareholder at Fredrickson Byron. I am a co-chair of the business litigation department. But my involvement in these cases started uh, when I was a very young lawyer. The first Supreme Court case was Rasul v. Bush, decided in 2004, on June 30th, I believe. That same day, uh, one of our partners, John Lundquist, uh, had his old friend, Joe Margulies, come to the firm to give a talk on Joe's work representing Guantanamo detainees. Joe's presentation happened to coincide on the very day that decision was handed down. And Rasul is important because that was the first decision that said that the detainees had the right to file these habeas petitions under the federal habeas statute. And so from that point forward, um, there was being that initiative was being led by other nonprofits like the Center for Constitutional Rights and law firms on the coasts. Um, Sherman and Sterling comes to mind as one of the early leaders. And Fredrickson decided to take a case. And I believe we were the first law firm, not on the coasts, to step up and take a case. And I think um, those steps led to other steps and other law firms making similar decisions so that eventually every detainee uh, had pro bono counsel, which I think was huge. Um, and also trying to like kind of some of my experiences uh, about it, there, there are a few um, anecdotes and stories I wanted to share. So first off, uh, we filed our uh, habeas petition in November of 2004. Our first visit to the base was in, I think, February or March of 2005. 
And sitting where we are today, I just want you to kind of imagine what it would have been like to have been in the situation that we were in. Uh, we have so much knowledge and information now about what happened, and we did not have that then. We had been in touch with other habeas counsel, so we knew some things. And here are some of the things we knew. First, we knew that Asin would likely have had little to no contact with the outside world for the past three years. He wouldn't know what was going on in the world. He wouldn't know what current events were happening. Uh, Asin and his wife were in Afghanistan and she was expecting their first child at the time that they needed to flee. And they decided to, to try to escape separately, believing correctly that she would have an easier time getting out than he would. And so we did not know if he knew that his wife had made it out um, and that she had given birth to their son, Kareem, who was about three years old by that point. Um, we knew that the detainees had been questioned extensively, but we did not have an understanding as to what exactly they had gone through. We did know that the detainees psychologically were not doing very well, which based on what we now know and no surprises there. And most of them didn't trust lawyers. Part of what we heard why they didn't trust lawyers is that some of the interrogators way back then were posing as lawyers and pretending to be lawyers for the detainees. And so as we were getting ready for our first trip down, uh, some of the other habeas counsel told us, hey, um, the interrogators, when they're pretending to be lawyers, they wear suits like you're going into court. And we're like, well, yeah, just we're going to wear a suit. That's what we wear with our clients. We wear suits. They said, don't do that. Go business casual. Um, and we later found out, by the way, that the interrogators had picked up on that had also switched to business casual. So that was great. We had sent Asin a letter uh, introducing ourselves, explaining who we were, that we were lawyers volunteering to represent him. But we knew from the habeas council that the mail service uh, to Guantanamo was slow to non-existent. So we did not know if he knew that we were coming or who we were. Um, and then lastly, for the first meeting, we had heard, uh, as uh, Professor Neil Lane said, um, that the, the, the detainee's uniform was important. So the detainees who were wearing white were the most compliant. The detainees who were wearing beige were in the middle. And the detainees who were wearing orange were the least compliant. And so as we walked into our uh, first meeting with Asin, he's in base, we're basically in kind of an air-conditioned shed. There's a card table. He's seated at the card table. He's leaning back. His legs are shackled through an eye bolt in the floor. And he's sitting back, looking at us impassively. You know, we were only about four feet away, but there could have been a wall between us. And he was wearing orange. And so from that first meeting, we had to develop trust and rapport and tell his story. And that was difficult and intense and time consuming. Um, a couple other brief points before I turn to our next person. Um, uh, the conditions of how the lawyers interacted with the detainees improved dramatically over time for how we communicated with them, the access we had to work with secure and classified materials. And those, those changes happened because the lawyers advocated for it. The lawyers advocated with the, you know, essentially the prosecution. The lawyers advocated with the courts. And so for those of you who may be thinking about doing something like this in the future, never give up. A good lawyer never gives up. You advocate, you try, you explain, you persuade. And it is through those steps, those repeated actions, that change and progress is made. Um, sort of an example of that, 
you know, uh, towards the end, we were headed towards the trial, the habeas trial with our client, and we needed to talk with them. And up until that point, our communication with our client had been through mail, hard copy mail. And we're like, judge, we've got some client issues. We have to talk to him now. And the governor's like, well, that's clearly not possible. You can't talk with your client on the phone. And so we went to the judge. We filed a motion because by this point, the, the proceedings, the habeas proceedings were moving along. I said, judge, we need an order. And she's like, here's your order. Give them phone access. And so suddenly something that was not possible became, well, here you go. Here's the process. Here's how you can talk with your client. So never give up. If your request is a good one, make it and make it repeatedly. Make the arguments. Um, and then, you know, last but not least, what we got to see as these habeas cases proceeded was essentially like the development of the common law in real time, because we've never done anything like this before due to how they were picked up, captured and detained. And yet you saw all the lawyers and the judges looking at these cases and saying collectively, well, this looks sort of like a civil discovery type issue. And this looks like an evidentiary issue. And over here, it looks more like a criminal situation. And so even though none of the rules were binding, we were able to come up with arguments about how the cases should proceed. And it was astounding to me and amazing to watch that happen in real time. And I was honored uh, to be a part of that. And then, and then I'm closing with this. So we got to watch this common law develop in real time. The cases went to trial. It was amazing. And even with the system set up as if it were a civil, which was a civil case. So the burden of proof is like at best a preponderance. Um, out of the 64 cases that went to trial in 39, so two thirds, the detainees won. That was amazing. They won under judges that were appointed by George W. Bush. They won under other judges. It was remarkable. And yet, every single one of those detainee victories was reversed or remanded by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Hundreds of people have been released from Guantanamo. Not one was released pursuant to a court order. And so um, I went from watching the common law develop in real time to watching the limits of what we could do as lawyers. Uh, our client was eventually released that was pursuant to an agreement, and I'm very happy we got him out. Um, for those of you who are thinking about pursuing a career in human rights, uh, as uh, Judge Keyes said, you can be a lawyer in private practice and do good while you are doing well, and I would also encourage you to remember that. Thank you. Nicole, thank you so much. That's such a, a rich reflection on so many accounts. I think the the role for lawyers to be in the fight and your perspective having been at such an early stage. And then also that sometimes the role is really like Fanula said, as being a witness, even when there aren't kind of successes that follow from those legal victories. So I really appreciate that reflection now that it's actually in the right time and order. I will turn over to Major Todd Pierce to share some reflections, just like uh, there's human rights work that's done inside human rights organizations and also by pro bono private attorneys. We're really fortunate today to hear Todd's perspective on some of the human rights defense that happened from inside the, the military. And so, Todd, you've been involved in this work for so long and in so many different capacities. I'm really excited to have you share some of your, your reflections, um, especially from your perspective as a military lawyer. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this, first of all, to the Human Rights Center. And um, uh, there's an, 
the preceding speakers have been so eloquent and uh, explained things so well, it's going to be tough to add much, but I'll tr try to add a little bit here. So with that, um, I don't want to forget to mention this because it occurred to me as I was listening. Uh, let me say that in Hannah Arendt's term, whom I've studied extensively, we are already seeing what she called a boomerang effect and how domestic policing has been so militarized after 20 years of war, as we saw last year in the murder of George Floyd. So we should not think that this is not having consequences here in the United States itself, uh, as we see the rule of law continuously assaulted in so many ways. So going on from there, first, let me thank the Human Rights Center for inviting me to be in this panel. I also want to thank the Human Rights Center for allowing me to appear before the appellate courts, including the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, multiple times as a senior fellow of the Center in the Military Commission's appellate case of Ali Hamza al-Balul v. United States. With that, most recently in a petition to the Supreme Court, again, for a writ of certiorari filed this month. But most particularly, though, I want to thank and pay tribute to the founder and longtime director of the Human Rights Center, David Weisbrot. Uh, I was introduced to David in 2008 when I uh, was preparing to depart for Washington, D.C. for service as a volunteer military commission's defense attorney as an Army judge advocate in the military commission's defense office. I volunteered for that duty as I was so offended, to put it mildly, at how the Bush administration, the military, and the CIA were trampling the Constitution and international law obligations we had previously claimed to uphold, to include, and specifically, the Geneva Conventions and the Convention Against Torture, uh, all now deemed quaint by Bush, uh, Bush administration officials. Uh, I would find on arrival at the commission's defense office that Professor Weisbrot was already assisting on a military commission's defense case, which was the Omar Carter, excuse me, Carter case, which I will return to in a moment. It must be made clear that I, as a military attorney, along with a relatively small number of other military attorneys in the defense office and other volunteers for the office, civilians like Professor Weisbrot, were involved to do the best that could be done to resurrect the rule of law as it was already too late to defend it in the sense that it still existed then or now at Guantanamo. But those who answered the call to demand that the government abide by the rule of law were often denounced as working on behalf of the terrorists and accused of waging lawfare in the phrase that one senior Air Force JAG officer used and accusing defense attorneys of waging that against the US government in their legal representation of Guantanamo prisoners. So it took extraordinary moral courage for civilian attorneys like David to step forward to volunteer in defense of the rule of law, and most specifically in what David did to help the, us military attorneys to demand fair trial rights in our arguments to the military commissions. So that is a brief introduction. I want to talk about legal ethics and the lack thereof in the military commission's prosecution office. Uh, I was on three different defense te teams representing three prisoners, and so I saw a lot. As I reminded yesterday or heard for the first time, a couple of the most egregious examples of the illicit nature of the prosecution office when talking to a former Navy Commission's defense attorney yesterday. She had gone to the University of Minnesota Law School and came back once to speak uh, on the commissions to the law school as an attorney on the Omar Cotter case. She told me that in a filing they had made to the Supreme Court, they had to look through some classified files with virtually everything classified in the commissions so the public can't learn how egregious the prosecutions are. To include using information derived from torture where the tortured will tell the torturers anything they think will end the torture. In that case, as I was, as I was told, the Cotter team came across a document which the prosecution had ordering that any exculpatory information found by the prosecution 
prosecutors was to be destroyed. How does one reconcile that with what are supposed to be legal ethics? The case of Omar Cotter was one of the most egregious examples of operating outside the law by the prosecution. But it was standard operating procedure for the prosecution and remains so to this day, though they've worked to present the appearance of a fair legal regime. And I've even said they wouldn't use information derived from torture in the actual military commissions final hearing, uh, which I refuse to call a trial, but yet use such information in preliminary hearings in asserting jurisdiction over um, a, a manufactured jurisdictional claim. One other example from the Cotter case was that he was charged with murder and violation of the laws of war as a child of 15 years old when he was captured. In this, he was accused of throwing a grenade at a U.S. soldier who was at the scene where a U.S. attack had, had just obliterated the site with Omar buried under the rubble, making it impossible for him to have thrown a grenade at anyone, buried as he was, with a photograph taken by a military member proving that. Yet the prosecution, and presumably the CIA, which is ever present at every hearing, and in the illicit surveillance of many defense attorneys, as is routinely discovered, objected to the photograph being introduced as evidence presumably, though not stated, because it was exculpatory. I could go into more detail and give many more examples of illicit prosecutorial conduct at Guantanamo, including directly touching me, but time does not allow that today. But one last point to make is that to the military, drawing on Colonel William Winthrop's 19th century treatise on military law, a military commission isn't a legal proceeding at all but is instead, as he described it, and as repeated in this century by less discreet officers, like the one who made the accusation of waging lawfare against defense attorneys, uh, military commissions are the authority, authority for the military commission, or rather he says the authority for the military commission is the same as the authority for making and prosecution of war and for the exercise of military government and martial law. The commission is simply an instrumentality for the more efficient execution of the war powers vested in Congress and the power vested in the president's commander-in-chief in war. In other words, it is a so-called special court, as Jewish-German attorney Ernst Franco described martial law courts in his 1941 book, The Dual State, which is not to say we have become equivalent to the Nazi state, but it is to say that to understand the form of military commissions, Frankel is the definitive voice on special courts. And to note that we've now killed, tortured, or displaced an amount of Muslims and Arabs counted in the millions, which all goes to why the global war on terrorism should be our national shame. So that, let me once again thank David Weisbrot for his exemplary service and um, model that he provided in defense of the rule of law. Thank you very much. God, thank you. And I know that you have so much more that you could add. I, I loved hearing your stories of traveling to Sudan. I know with your work, you got to do and see so much, and we're really grateful that you were able to join us today for that perspective. And likewise, to turn it to our, our final speaker in this kind of round of the panel, I'd like to invite Peter Thompson to join the conversation. And Peter, in addition to the wide ranging work that you've done on a number of different human rights issues, you've also written and taught on the ethical duties for lawyers to defend the rule of law when democratic institutions are under threats, and I know you focus especially on government lawyers, so I'm hoping that you can help us close out this first round of comments and reflections by telling us a little bit about your work and some takeaways that you have on the ethical and professional responsibility considerations. Thank you, Amanda. Um, yeah, I made a little bit of a cottage industry post-retirement uh, um, of these war on terrorism issues. Uh, end up putting together a 
uh, key, um, class with Jeff Keyes over at William Mitchell called War, Peace War and the Constitution. We looked a lot at these terrorism issues that have been talked about by many of the panelists here. And I was introduced into this um, Guantanamo defense by David Weisbrod, because I was a criminal defense lawyer. And we looked at specifically um, these torture issues. And the more we began looking at these issues, which uh, Mr. Pierce just talked about in the Omar Khadr case, um, the more bothersome it became to look at lawyers' participation um, in the formulation of those policies. Um, and specifically, here's a very summary um, statement in a book called Torture Team. It was put out by an international lawyer from London. And he basically says that this policy of coercive interrogation should have been drawn up around the law. Instead, the legal advice was fitted around the policy. For that alone, the most senior lawyers involved, the members of the War Council, bear a direct responsibility for all that followed. David Addington, Alberto Gonzalez, John Yu, and Jim Haynes. So those are the lawyers who are responsible for putting together that policy that ended up with Omar Khadr being brutally handled um, after he was almost killed in the battlefield, uh, after he was in a hospital at Bagram Air Force Base, after he was uh, taken to Guantanamo, at the suppression hearing that I was involved with, with Rebecca Snyder, that's the lawyer from the University of Minnesota who was representing Omar Khadr, along with Bill Keebler. Uh, it came out uh, that he had been shackled numerous times, that he had been uh, forced to uh, lay on the ground after he'd been urinated. He was held for several years without any contact with counsel whatsoever. And in a situation like that, my experience had been that suppression of any of his confessions would have been absolutely routine. Um, and of course, those confessions were allowed into evidence and therefore he ended up finally entering in a plea agreement. So the responsibility for that kind of behavior rests unfortunately very close, closely to lawyers. Um, these lawyers who were in the very high um, echelons of government. Uh, the ABA said this about their performance. Condoning torture under any circumstances erodes one of the most basic principles of international law and human rights. Places captured U.S. personnel at inordinate risk, contradicts the basic values of a democratic state. Moreover, the violations feed terrorism by painting the United States as an arrogant nation above the law. The American Bar Association must go on record as supporting adherence to the rule of law as a fundamental principle, for when the rule of law suffers, all who claim its benefit are less secure. So the ethical constraint, it just seems so obvious, but many of the ethical rules have to do with advocacy or conflicts or other things. 
the ethical rule, which is very simple and which applies probably to more lawyer work than any other rule is 2.1. And 2.1 in the concise understanding of it requires honest and independent advice because lawyers give advice all the time in every kind of setting. And here, these lawyers were giving advice to the administration as to what could be done. And the advice now, which has been, you know, taken apart and repudiated was simply not independent and honest. It was advice that was designed to do what the client wanted to do. So you can see that can come up uniformly in every situation of the practice of law, not just in a dramatic situation like this. And so that's why if you oftentimes, the best thing you can do as a lawyer, it'll be consistent with your own interpretation of the best view of the law and uphold the rule of law is to say one simple word to a client, no. And what they did is figure out a convoluted way to say yes, many times, many times with these dramatic and harmful um, results to our national integrity, to all of these people that were tortured and um, really to the entire operation of the global international law because the United States was one of the first nations to actually try to implement um, the ban on torture, worked for decades and decades to do it. And in fact, the State Department used to designate in their annual reports, which would be a torturing nation or none, to kind of separate the civilized from the uncivilized. And in one swift move, we moved from one side to the other. Um, and if I'm not out of time, I have one vignette of a lawyer that actually showed the courage um, to do an honest and independent interpretation. Um, dramatically, Jeff Keyes and I met him at the Supreme Court argument in the Bomidian case. His name is Steve Abram. Um, Steve was the son of a Holocaust survivor and he was a reservist lieutenant colonel. And his commander, an admirable, filed uh, an admiral filed a declaration with the U.S. Supreme Court indicating that the CSRT hearings were really fully compliant with due process. Steve had been assigned; he re-upped and was assigned after 9/11 into the service and was assigned to the CSRT panels in Guantanamo. Um, he realized a lot of these defects that were going down on there that Pierce had mentioned and that others have mentioned. And so he was contacted uh, to file his own declaration, which he did, which was directly contrary to the Admiral's declaration. And most people um, credit his bravery in coming forward with that declaration with the reversal of the denial of cert in Bomidian to change to a grant of cert, to change to the expansion of habeas rights for all the Guantanamo detainees. Um, so as, as there are stories on the side that we're ashamed of as lawyers and their ethics, 
there are many stories um, besides the Minnesota people, many stories with people that had a lot to lose who were in the government who actually stood up for the rule of law. Thank you. Peter, thank you. That's really powerful. And I'm, I'm sure everybody listening can easily draw the, the lesson to really recent years and the role of, of government lawyers. We are quickly approaching 115. It's just a travesty that we have so much expertise in such a short time. I'm going to ask Professor Neeline if you want to make a few kind of reactions or, or comments before we wrap up. Yeah, I mean, one is, I mean, maybe there's some great old Minnesota, I'm a, I'm a blow into Minnesota, but there's some traits about Minnesota that I really like. Um, one is kind of quiet tenacity. You know, we don't do things with big fanfares, but we're very good at doggedly pushing on fundamental values and making sure they hold. And I think there's a lot of that dogged determination much in evidence today. I think the other thing that really strikes me, and this comes through Amy and everyone's and um, Jeff's, uh, Justice Keyes' comments, just the um, long and proud tradition of doing this kind of um, committed pro bono work on really hard cases, on cases that are going to be not lauded, cases where lawyers and law firms can get into trouble if they don't make the positive case for the rule of law. And I think that's also much in evidence today. I also just want to acknowledge Todd's comments about the role of military lawyers. One of the things I found when I visited Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, I've seen it with my own students who are veterans, that their commitment to the rule of law, the military's commitment to the rule of law, is in part what saved us from many civilian lawyers who essentially thought that the law was for sale to the bidder of the day. And I think remembering the importance of that and the importance role, important and and really, um, it, you know, the role that military lawyers have paid often with very high costs to serving military members who've been on the defense teams of many of the uh, Guantanamo Bay um, detainee cases, I think is one that we all have to take hold of. And I take from this that we just need another conversation. There's so much richness in this room and so much to learn and so much for our students to learn about what kind of lawyering happens in Minnesota and what kind of values and, um, and defense of the rule of law are really embedded in the DNA of this place. So I'm really, really, really grateful to have been a part of this conversation. Thank you all. Thanks so much. In just the, the very last seconds, I have to say I was a student at the law school in 2008 and was able to work on the Guantanamo Defense Project. And now in this project, I was able to go back in my same email and see a lot of exchanges with people on this call and people that are, are attending today. And it's really unique for our students then and now to be able to be integrated into this type of work that goes on here in Minnesota. And that's such a gift. And so to all the students on the call, I encourage you to take advantage of this space and this mentorship that exists in the hands-on training. I invite everybody to follow the programming of the center and of the human rights program over in liberal arts. We've got a lot of great events and I hope that we're able to keep this conversation going throughout the year and really grateful to our excellent speakers and to everybody who made the time today to join us. So thank you all very much. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law 
or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.